0: Revelation 2 verse 8 says unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you uh, into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And Father, we humbly pause and ask for just grace and help as we stand here before you in honor of your word. And Lord, like soldiers wanting our marching orders from the word of God, that even now, Lord, you would prepare each one of us accordingly, and you know what that means. And Lord, write your will upon the fleshly tablet of our heart this morning. Speak to us, Lord, personally and collectively through what you have spoken here in the written word of God, by your spirit's ministry. And we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, even as our Lord Jesus himself clearly endured a lot of suffering regarding things like mistreatment and enduring tremendous hardship during the time of his earthly life as he walked on this planet as his followers, part of our earthly journey in relationship with the Lord means that at times our earthly experience is going to include the same. That from time to time, we as well will endure things like suffering mistreatment, enduring hardship, and contrary to my human preference as well as your human preference, that would love to avoid every form of mistreatment every form of suffering, any hardship in our earthly experience, and contrary to any bad theology, though it does exist, that would teach and convey the ideas that Christians should never struggle, and if they had enough faith, they should never endure hardship or sickness or difficulty. God's Word, not the Word of any theologian, God's Word clearly teaches, if you just read it, Theologically, that Christians will at times endure through hard things. You cannot make an honest reading of the Word of God and not come to that conclusion, that due to both our commitment to follow the Lord. Part of our commitment to faithfully follow Jesus alone is going to bring at times hardship into our lives and suffering to a degree. And then add on to that secondarily, we live in a fallen world system that has been cursed by sin And because of that, part of human existence involves suffering and hardship in different degrees and in different ways, whether it's through sickness or tragedy or problems or struggles on this planet. So the important thing then becomes really how we navigate mistreatment how we journey and navigate hardships and difficulties, because one of two things can be the outcome. We can either be overcome by our hard experiences or by the power of God and through the grace of our Lord's help, we can overcome through the hardships and through the difficulties. Romans chapter 8 tells us that even as a spirit-led believer, we will endure, he describes there, tribulation hardship, distresses, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword, literally implying being threatened with death. He then goes on to say in Romans 8, for it is written, reaching back to the Old Testament, for your sake, Lord, we face death all day long and are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, Yet despite all those things, Romans 8 tells us what? That we can become more than conquerors through the Lord and through his love for us. The idea there literally is we can have overcoming victory and we can conquer the battles, the hardships, the things that come against our lives, but only through Christ and through his power helping us. And that concept of enduring hardship but overcoming hardship is what really Jesus is addressing in now this second letter to this next church that he's writing to, the church of Smyrna here in our text. Now, it should be pretty obvious from the verses that we read, verse 8 through 11 this morning, that this second letter of the seven letters Jesus writes is written now to a church and a group of believers who are presently enduring very heavy persecution from a satanic influence That's coming against their lives, and that they are enduring very hard times. They're facing great pain currently, and then Jesus even prophetically indicates to them there are more things that are still coming. And he says the suffering's actually going to get worse. And he kind of prophetically indicates to them that their hardship now wasn't the end, that more difficult things were even coming down the road. Now, as we said with these letters in the book of Revelation, certainly in a unique way, it is interesting how they have historical applications as well in the way that Jesus addressed them geographically in the order that he addressed them in. Very interesting, of course, as the god of ages, he knows all things. They also very fittingly speak of different generations of church history. And so, as he describes now this letter sharing his heart to this persecuted church, the Church of Smyrna, historically the application fits very well with the next age of church history from around 100 to 300 AD, which was the time period up to the time when Constantine came to power And during those two centuries of the church, from around 100 to 300 or so AD, it was a time where there were multiple severe waves of tremendous persecution that came against Christians. Under different Roman emperors during that time, Christians were being killed through being crucified through being hung on stakes and uh, burned alive as human candles. They would dip them in pitch, and then they literally would light them literally like human candles and watch them burn to death. They were thrown into uh, you know, areas where lions were with blood upon them to cause the lions to ferociously attack them and devour them as entertainment in coliseums. Before these emperors and people who would watch this as a form of entertainment. So Christians during this time were subjected to all kinds of cruelty, physical abuse, economic abuse against their lives, social mockery and persecution. And look, as American Christians, I think it is hard for us, if we were to be very honest with ourselves, to fully relate to severe persecution against the church, in comparison to the rest of really the known world where Christianity is very faithfully flourishing as well all around the globe, for a percentage, and I would go on to say maybe even a a good amount, a, a large percentage of the body of Christ, they endure some pretty heavy suffering, persecution, and mistreatment for their simple willingness to have faith in Christ. And they're suffering in, in, you know, radical Islamic countries and places where there's radical Hinduism, where there's great hatred towards Christians and animosity. Uh, There are Christians all over this globe who read this letter to the Church of Smyrna, and it resonates with their heart tremendously because they are going through very severe persecution and painful mistreatment, and it's very helpful for them navigating their suffering. Yet, measures of mistreatment, measures of hardship, measures of struggle and pain and and satanic attack is something really we all know that no believer is immune from, right? You you can't be a believer for that long before you start to realize something has happened. And exactly, you're right. You have been drafted, conscripted into the Lord's army, which means there's another army, (laughs) And they don't tell you when they share the gospel with you about spiritual warfare. They leave that part out. They just say, would you like your sins forgiven? Do you want to go to heaven? Would you like to have Jesus help you steer your life so you're not crashing and wrecking and making a mess of your life, and then you decide to follow Jesus, and then afterwards say, by the way, you just signed up for the Lord's army, and there's a really intense horrible battle going on until the day you enter into heaven, and you've now come to the right side, but yet you've also been drafted, and there's going to be spiritual warfare as well. Again, Jesus said to us in John chapter 16 that if the world hated me, you can't be surprised if it's going to hate you as you follow me and you represent me. Jesus said, in this world, you will have, promise, tribulation, crushing hardships. There will be difficulties Peter, 1 Peter, as he writes that letter, the whole letter, the theme of it is all about Christian suffering. So when you're suffering and struggling, my encouragement to you is with an open heart, go to the letter of 1 Peter and read through it and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Things about Christian suffering. Peter there in his own writing under the inspiration of the Spirit talks about suffering as a Christian according to the will of God describing that at times it is a part of God's will when we navigate in seasons and different times through suffering, whether it's suffering of mistreatment for our Christian faith or whether it's just suffering that we're going through as a part of being on a broken, sinful planet where people are suffering. None of us are immune, and you can follow Christ as faithfully as you want. You can have faith more than anybody on this planet, but hardship and suffering is just a part of the earthly journey and it's something James tells us first Peter tells us that in measure we all go through from time to time and this church particularly now that Jesus addresses is the suffering church this is the group of believers he now addresses remember last time Ephesians chapter or excuse me Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 that was the church remember that was very productive but they lost their passion And they had struggled with no longer retaining their first love. they had become mechanical in their spiritual lives. Jesus now addresses this church, and now he's addressing a group of people, a particular congregation that's going through very hard times. And there's great pain, and their pain is very raw, and they are dealing with severe persecution and satanic attack and horrible mistreatment. And let me just say, before we jump into verse eight through 11 together, let me make two bird's eye observations of this particular letter that Jesus writes now to the church in pain or to the Christians who are suffering. Notice if you would, first of all, that of all seven letters, this is the shortest of all Jesus's letters. To me, I don't find that accidental. That this is the shortest of all seven letters indicating what? Jesus says the least to those who are in pain. To those who are suffering, hurting, and going through hardship, Jesus says the absolute least to them. Now that's a very fitting, I think, really illustration and a good lesson for all of us because typically when people are hurting and going through hard times, typically we tend to want to say more. We feel like we need to give an explanation, we need to say, and, and I understand it's in good intention. But it's interesting that Jesus, who's the best minister on the planet and knows how to help people with hurting, broken lives, Jesus chooses to say the least amount. He says less. And I think it's a great reminder for all of us. You know, think of Job in the Old Testament, right? Things were going really great when his friends were just being around him and supporting him with their presence. When did things go south? When they started talking, (laughs) I mean, that really is if you just evaluate it. Once they started talking and trying to find reasons, and well, maybe this and maybe that, the more they said, the more problematic the situation became. And so I think this is a very beautiful reminder to us that we should all take to heart. Less is usually more when someone's hurting. Less is usually more. When I was a police chaplain, Back uh, in York, Pennsylvania, when we were pastor in Calvary Chapel York there for the six-plus years that I got a chance to serve as a police chaplain, if we had guys who we brought on board, because there was a team of us who were chaplains who did not know how to use self-control, we dismissed them. And what I mean by self-control is pastorally, if they did not know how to realize there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And there's a time to just say, say less, and that it's a ministry of presence. And we dealt with people dealing with all types of horrific things. I mean, suicide situations, you know, domestic abuse, I mean, uh, sexual abuse. And, and so sometimes if we had guys who started sermonizing and we sensed that, we got rid of them because we realized that less many times was more. And I think Jesus gives us a really wonderful example in recognizing that by observation. And secondly, notice also, this is one of the only two churches that Jesus does not fault for anything. And I find that interesting as well, that this church that's in pain, Jesus says nothing corrective to them. And here's, I think, perhaps why. Because pain and hard times kind of have a purifying effect in our lives anyway. When we go through hard experiences and difficult times, It's amazing how when we're in the fire, it has a very purifying effect in our lives. So whether, again, that's congregationally, and the Lord uses difficulty to purify and to purge, whether it's a family, whether it's an individual, it's amazing how hard times can produce some really cleansing, purifying things in our lives, because things are brought to the surface, and many times we're reconciling them on our own. So verse eight, Jesus begins this letter. Look with me. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, again, that word angels, we said messenger, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, right. Now take notice, this letter is written to Smyrna. Smyrna we know is a beautiful port city, about 35 miles north of Ephesus. So if you go up north, it's kind of the next major city that you would hit there. And it was a great center for trading in that day. It was kind of a harbor city. And interesting that the one persecuted church that Jesus chose to address was the church of Smyrna. Now, certainly they weren't the only church, no doubt, that were going through persecution at that time. In the same way as I said, he selects these seven specific churches. There were more than these churches, but Jesus purposely chose these seven because there were letters that he wanted to convey, and I think in some way they're a good representation of a complete picture and representation of different states and conditions that churches can be in and Christians can be going through. So he addresses the church of Smyrna as his pick for the church in persecution and going through suffering and pain. And I find that interesting because the name Smyrna itself comes from the root word of what we know as the myrrh plant or the myrrh shrub. And here's what's unique about that. The myrrh plant or the myrrh tree or shrub is an interesting plant God's designed in that it becomes most beneficial after it's been crushed. The myrrh tree doesn't really give its ultimate benefit until after it's been crushed and it's been grinded. That's how they would get that beautiful fragrant aroma, the myrrh aroma, the pleasant fragrance, it was after it was crushed that then the fragrance was emitted. In the same way, it was the crushing of the myrrh plant and the crushing of the myrrh shrub that brought about also oils that had properties that were medicinally helpful and that were health beneficial. And to me, I think that's very interesting because just like the crushing of the myrrh plant brought out its fullest benefit So also, is it not true, many times that happens in our lives. A lot of times in our lives, sometimes some of the most crushing experiences that we go through ultimately bring out some of the most beneficial things in our lives as people. Sometimes it's the hardest times that we've gone through that have brought the most beneficial things in our life afterwards. For some of us, that may have been how you came to Christ, Through that tremendous hardship and the breaking of your pride and the difficulty, and you started rethinking about life in a whole different way, and it was the most crushing, hard times in our lives that many times made it cause us to consider our need for God. Sometimes, for some of us, it's when we grew way closer to the Lord because we sunk our roots deeper and we realized, look, this, this theology is becoming real now. Like, I need Jesus in a way like I've never needed Jesus before, his help, his forgiveness. Maybe it was the crushing experience of failure, and it caused you to appreciate the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiveness in a way you never really did before until you majorly found yourself dealing with guilt and regret from a crushing failure and all the struggles that are attached to that. And I think just sometimes generally, as we go through hardship, it's when we just experience the Lord's presence in a beautiful way. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of how through suffering, the life of Jesus ends up many times being manifested through our lives to a much greater degree. You know, we read Bible passages that when we're weak, that's when he's strong. And so often, it's the hardest experiences in our lives that many times bring a sweet, pleasing aroma to the Lord. And many times a sweet, pleasing aroma for the Lord. I can tell you some of the people who have had the aroma of Christ so powerful and so beautiful in their lives, some of those that I've watched have been people who have gone through some of the hardest experiences, where it's in the midst of a hard experience that that Christ's fragrance is just radiating from their life in a very beautiful way. You know, we do see myrrh being used multiple times in connection with Jesus. Matthew 2, remember, it was one of the three gifts that was brought to Jesus, And then also remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and and myrrh was mixed with that wine because it was intended to be a painkiller to try and reduce the, the traumatic suffering that Jesus was going through. And do you remember what Jesus did when they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to reduce the pain and the suffering? He refused it. He refused it because he wanted, it seems, to absorb the full painful experience to endure everything possible for the purpose that that painful hardship was having in his life as he was suffering and dying for our sins. And then, of course, when Jesus was being buried as well, we're told in John chapter 19 that they anointed his body with myrrh, that fragrant burial scent, which was very beautiful. Exodus chapter 30, it's interesting, myrrh was actually one of the ingredients, if you look in Exodus 30, it's one of the ingredients that was used to make the holy anointing oil that those who ministered, the priests and ministers in the house of God, were anointed with. And again, we know oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit's anointing, and I find that interesting because one of the ingredients many times God will use to prepare us for the Holy Spirit's anointing upon our life in a greater way, I think at times, is the process of pain and crushing experiences. And sometimes it's the hard things that we go through the difficulties that bring about better preparation for anointing and usefulness for the Lord in our lives. It's when God crushes our pride or God breaks our will or God just brings us through a hardship and out of that hardship or pain or difficulty, all of a sudden we are way more sensitive to the pain of other people. We become much better comforters We care about things that matter before. I'm sure all of you before have perhaps heard that statement, and I apologize, I don't know who was the one that said it, that often before someone can be used greatly, they must first be wounded deeply. And I think there's a degree of truth to that. You know, Paul knew that, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember, the Lord allowed that painful affliction and the satanic discouragement that came along with it. And Paul pleaded with the Lord to take away that painful thorn in his flesh, remember? And Jesus didn't remove the pain. Paul thought the pain was prohibiting him from moving forward in the things of the Lord. And so he's saying, Lord, this is holding me back. Take it out of my life. And Jesus said, Paul, it's actually not holding you back. It's actually the very thing that helps you the most. Because you're a very self-sufficient person. And so this makes you remain dependent upon me. And remember, that was when Jesus said to him, my grace you'll find will be sufficient for you. And Paul discovered measures of the grace of the Lord that he never knew before to where Paul then, therefore, most gladly, he said, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecution, distresses. For Christ's sake, and then Paul said, for when I am weak, that's actually when I'm strong. When I'm weakened in myself, that's, he says, when the power of the Lord is the most strong in my life because I'm dependent upon him and it's by his grace I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think sometimes it is just like that myrrh plant, the crushing, like the church of Smyrna here, that the Lord will use something productive even with pain in our own lives. He says, these things says, verse 8 going on, Jesus says, the first and the last who was dead And came to life. So interesting to see how Jesus now introduces himself to this particular church. Each of the seven churches, he reveals himself, drawing from something from the glorified picture of himself, the vision that John had in chapter 1. Here Jesus reveals himself to those in pain and persecution as the incarnate God. He describes himself here in verse 8 as the eternal God who manifested himself in human flesh as a man. So notice, in his statements here in verse 8, first of all, Jesus refers to himself as the eternal God. He calls himself, look at it there in verse 8, he calls himself the first and the last. Very interesting, because Isaiah 44, verse 6, Jehovah God declares, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, beside me there is no God. It tells us in Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth or ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now look what Jesus Christ claims in verse 8. I am the first and the last. Was Jesus God? Absolutely. The first and the last was a title of God in the Old Testament, and now Jesus takes that title to himself, revealing that he is the same God of Israel, that he is the eternally existent God who has been around for all time together with the Father in heaven. So it means the Lord Jesus truly had no beginning. Jesus, in fact, calls himself later, he says, I am the beginning and I am the end. His very life is the beginning and the end. Unlike us who, in our humanity, we have a day of creation. For Jesus, there was never a time when he did not exist. Jesus has always existed. There was a time period he entered into the earth and took a second nature and a body of flesh as a man, and that he was born and lived as a human being. But that wasn't when his life began. That was just when his earthly human life began. He was the eternally existent son of God who has been around forever. That's why whenever Jesus speaks of his life, he always speaks of his life in the perpetual present tense, right? Jesus says of himself, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. We're told in John chapter eight, when Jesus was speaking, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, I've always existed. Now, the question is this, How does that fact that Jesus is the first and the last, the eternally existent God, how does that help us in hardship? Why did Jesus want those in pain and persecution and hardship to know that he's the eternally existent God? How does that benefit them? How does that benefit us? Well, unlike us who spend a lot of time when we're in our hardship, when we're navigating our mistreatment who are going through our painful problems, and we're doing what? We're trying to figure it out. Man, why is this happening, and how do I get through this, And, and how do I deal with this? Jesus has witnessed through all of human history, every painful experience, every human hardship, every time a child of God was mistreated. Jesus is the eternally existent God, which means he's extremely experienced with people's pain. He's a veteran when it comes to helping people through persecution and mistreatment. He is absolutely eternally qualified because for all of human history with every single person who has ever lived, who's navigated every type of problem and hardship and pain and tragedy and difficulty, Jesus has helped everyone through those things many, 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 many many times over. So he's very qualified. Which makes it very beneficial for us because it means Jesus already knows how to handle our problem. He knows how to help us with our pain or our hardship or what we're going through because he has helped many, many others through the same thing many times before. And not only that, because he dwells in the eternal realm, he's fully aware of what's coming ahead. He tells this group, I know what's coming down the road. And how wonderful in the midst of our hardship, to know that Jesus even knows the future, because that means Jesus can help me from the first moment the problem starts until the very last moment that the problem ends, because he spans all of time in eternity. And so his eternal existence is a great help that he's with us to help us. The second thing he calls himself here is, he says, I am he who was dead and now came to life. And there he's picturing himself as the overcoming man. He's the first and the last, that's the eternal God from the Old Testament, and he calls himself the one who was dead, only people die, and came back to life. That pictures him as the overcoming man in his humanity. Jesus became a man, and then he submitted himself as a man to painful torture and ultimately the process of death, and undergoing all of that, it was fully under Jesus' control. Remember, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, but in his humanity, Jesus, he says, I became dead, but what does he say there? And then I came back to life. I defeated the power of death. One of the greatest powers that exists, Jesus overcame death. That's why Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation, but he added that additional thing to say, but take heart, I've overcome not just death. He said, I've overcome the whole world. I've overcome everything. And how wonderful to know as a Christian, if you're in relationship with the Lord Jesus, that the overcoming son of man is who you're doing life with. He dwells within you by his spirit. His presence is with you as his servant, as a child of God. And how wonderful to know Hebrews 2 says, in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's now able to aid, to assist all those who are being tempted and struggling. Unlike others, when we go through hard things, folks, Jesus always understands. And sometimes that's the dilemma, is we may feel like it just no one understands. And, and you may be true in that. It may be, maybe some people have a similar struggle, but it may be true to degree. say no one truly understands. I would just say, add into that as a qualifier, no human being, no person on earth truly understands. But Jesus understands, because Jesus has experienced everything through human history, and Jesus has overcome every painful trial, difficulty, and hardship, and Jesus understands, and he through working in your life can help you and I to overcome, so that we're not overcome, but through his overcoming power, he can give us victory so that we're not crushed and overcome, but can overcome through the hardship. Going on in verse 9, Jesus says, and I know your works, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, obviously, as I said, these believers are under heavy persecution. They're going through very crushing, hard experiences. And to make it more difficult, the undesirable circumstances and the pain that they're going through and the hardship take notice These were not things that they provoked. In other words, they didn't bring on their own self-inflicted trial, which we've all done before. We know what that is, right? When you can go, man, I'm going through a hardship, and yeah, it's all my fault. That's not the situation. What they're dealing with, the pain, the problem that they're going through, they didn't sign up for it, they didn't do something to bring it upon themselves, Instead, it was happening outside of their control. And sometimes that's how pain and hardship happens. It's outside of our control. Again, whether it's mistreatment or just some difficulty or trial that we're going through. And notice what Jesus begins by telling those who are going through tremendous hardship and pain. He says there, I have this circled in my Bible, verse 9. He says, I know. Let that settle on your heart for a moment pain, hardship, difficulty, Jesus says, I know, I know, I understand, I can see you're struggling, I know it hurts tremendously, I, I know what you're going through, and, and I'm fully acquainted with it, the depth of the pain, the hardship, what you're dealing with, the mistreatment, whatever it may be, the Bible tells us, Isaiah 53, that Jesus himself was a man acquainted with grief, with sorrow, with hardship. Jesus experienced such, and I don't know about you, but somehow being assured that in the midst of pain or hardship that we haven't been abandoned and that Jesus is fully aware, I don't know, somehow that just brings at least a little bit of a comforting difference to just be fully aware that Jesus would say, I know, I know, I know it's hard, I know what you're dealing with is difficult, and I think it's so beautiful that Jesus wanted them to be able to hear that. He says to them, I know your works, that is, I see the good works you're still doing in spite of the hardship that you're enduring, and I appreciate that, that you're still walking out and doing good works in the midst of your hardship. He says to them in verse nine, and I know your tribulation, and that's that Greek term thlipsis, which speaks of a crushing, heavy pressure. The idea is such heavy pressure that it feels like you're suffocating. And Jesus was saying that, and the heavy pressure they were under was because of the resistance of anti-Christian forces that were coming against their lives, and they were facing severe hardship. That's what he's describing here in this verse. The weight of their pain and problems were devastating. He says to them as well, as they were being mistreated and persecuted and punished, he says, I also know of your poverty, verse 9. And that word poverty in the Greek is a term that spoke of abject poverty. In other words, it was the term used to speak of extreme, poor financial conditions. Absolute abject poverty. Picturing what Jesus is saying is they had absolutely nothing material. Everything had either been lost or it had been brutally taken away from them abusively, and they are basically destitute of all human possessions in the tangible world. That they did not have what was necessary, they were struggling, their property had been revoked, their possessions had been taken, there was severe lack, they were struggling with survival. That's the picture here of what they were going through in their undress treatment that people were hurting them. And we know this was a form of persecution in that day, and it's a form of persecution that still exists to this day, is to persecute Christians in a way whereby they literally lose their jobs, they lose their homes, they're pushed out of societies and out of territories. I mean, this is what they're going through. So they're in severe poverty in a real tangible way. However, notice what Jesus says to them. Though they were poor by this present world standards, Jesus says, What? You're rich. He says, You're poor from this world standards, but he says, But you are wealthy according to heavenly standards. They had little to nothing materially, but Jesus said they were actually rich spiritually. You know, James chapter 2, verse 5 declares in that book as well that the poorest of Christians in that day were actually rich in faith. A complete contrast. They were spiritually wealthy. They truly, why? Because they truly live by faith. See, because when you got nothing, you got to live by faith. When you're wondering where your next meal's going to come from, or your home's just been burned down, right? Or, or, or nobody will hire you in the community because you're a follower of Christ and it's radically Islamic or radically Hindu or whatever it may be, and they find out you're a follower of Christ and no one will give you business. You're living by faith. Lord. what am I gonna do? I gotta feed my family, and and, and people are threatening your life. You're living by faith. And in a whole new way, you're coming to determinations and realities where you're not distracted by material stuff. Jesus becomes your treasure this becomes your treasure. (laughs) Prayer becomes your treasure. The love of fellow Christians becomes your treasure. The love of, you know what, I can't wait to be with Christians again because it is so hard being a Christian. I want to be with Christians. I've got to be with Christians. I need the encouragement. I need the the inspiration that we bring as we come together. Those things become your treasure. The privilege to serve the Lord instead of just serving vain worldly things, that becomes your treasure. And Jesus says to them here, listen, from from worldly standards, you look incredibly poor, but he says, but from my perspective, you're rich in what really matters. And I think that's very interesting because we're gonna get to Revelation chapter three where Jesus, the last church he writes to, which would be the last generation of the church. He refers to them as the lukewarm church who was making him so sick he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. And he says to that church, you are wealthy, you're affluent. They were prospering materially. And Jesus said to them, you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And Jesus said, and you don't know, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They thought they were the happening thing, and Jesus said, you are the most miserable, poor, wretched group of Christians I've ever seen. And to this church, who seems to have nothing, Jesus says, you are so spiritually rich. You're wealthy spiritually. And again, this is a good reminder to all of us folks, the Lord's value system is much different than my and your value system, and we should remember that. That's why Jesus in Luke 12 says that we should seek to be rich toward God. And I think this is also a reminder that it's not our assessment of our life that's usually accurate. And it's not the world's assessment of our life that may be accurate. The assessment that we should be most concerned about, Lord, what's your assessment of my life? Jesus' assessment of the life of these people was much higher than probably their own or anyone else's. And it seems part of the persecution being brought upon them was severe, slander and accusation, just lies of others. You see what he says there in the end of verse 9. He says to them, he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So interesting. He refers to those who say they are Jews but are not. Romans chapter 2 tells us this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. What was Paul describing there? What Paul was describing was being one of God's chosen people as a Jew was always supposed to be about way more than just national identity. It was to be way more about outward religious observances or a claim of heritage. It was intended to be foremost a condition of the heart toward God that they were a people who lived after the things of God's Spirit and reflected the heart of God in their daily lives. And apparently, these particular Jews that Jesus describes in this synagogue in that day there that he's referring to in verse 9, apparently, they were way off of God's ideal spiritually. They were completely off target to the point where they were severely anti-Christian, as were, unfortunately, many of the Jews in the day of Christ, that's why they persecuted him and rejected him as the son of God, and therefore Jesus said that this group of Christians in Smyrna were experiencing the blasphemy of those who were saying they were Jews, but really were not. In other words, they were speaking evil against Christian believers and Christ followers, causing further problems with the Romans and conveying the fact that the plague in the society are these Christians it's the church people. They're the ones that are the problem in culture. And so we need to rid them if the Roman empire is going to flourish. We need to get rid of these Christ followers. Very interesting. Notice in verse nine that Jesus goes so far to say to them, they're not only not real Jews, but he says, he calls them, they are a synagogue of Satan. Ouch. I mean, that's pretty strong language. Satan, of course, we know is the title that speaks of one who is an adversary or an enemy. It's a word that means opposer and one who opposes God's will. And that's exactly what Satan himself, the devil does. He opposes God's will. And Jesus calls them a synagogue, a religious gathering of Satan. So what Jesus is conveying there very clearly Were they a religious gathering? But yes, Jesus says they are, but they are a religious gathering and group of people who actually is being influenced by Satan himself, despite how they portray themselves. Boy, that is a strong reminder that just because you have a religious gathering or a religious group, that it does not mean it's of God. Because Jesus said here, that religious group the way they're behaving, that religious gathering, they are being directed by satanic influences and in things that they're doing. And I tell you, that religious group, particularly sadly, that was bringing some of the greatest persecution against these Christians there in Smyrna, noticed that one of Satan's most powerful tools to hurt and to harm people and cause suffering is what? Through the tongue, through things spoken. They were blaspheming these Christians In the society, as I said, and that is one of Satan's strongest agendas as a spiritual adversary against Christians and against the church, is to use lies and slander and untrue things. Satan speaks ideas and ideologies that are lies about the church and about true Christians because one of the things he wants to convey, and you see it now and watch it unfold, folks, it's going to continue to go on, is to convey that Christians and the church are the world's plague and to get people to believe those kind of ideas and ideologies. And this is exactly what was happening to this persecuted church here in Smyrna. The lies, the voice of Satan speaking things that were ruining and causing harm. Verse 10, Jesus says to them, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation. That's our word, crushing trial again. For 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus now moves from what they are suffering, and I wish he didn't, but he does there. He now moves from what they are suffering, he says, verse 10, to what you're about to suffer, meaning there was more to come. And notice there's no clear explanation for the problems, and not even any promise that the solution to the problem or the release of the problem or the pain was going to end soon. In fact, Jesus knowing and foreseeing all what lies ahead in verse 10, he actually is lovingly forewarning them, saying to them, listen, because I love you, I wanna be honest with you, you're about to suffer even severe, greater problems than you already are. And he was telling them, helpfully, the battle was gonna intensify so that they weren't surprised and they weren't caught off guard but so they could be adequately prepared, I believe, so they weren't defeated and they could overcome. If you hear the heart of Jesus, what he's saying there in verse 10 to them, he's saying, and listen, the devil is about, he says, to intensify yet still some of his crushing efforts. And he's saying, it's actually going to get even harder. It's actually going to get worse than it is now. There are still those things, he says to them, that you are about to suffer. He says the devil, verse 10, is about to throw some of you into prison that you may, verse 10, be tested. And that word tested he uses is a word that speaks of being tested by something being subjected to intense heat and a fiery furnace. And that's what Jesus is describing here, that something being tested by intense heat and fire to examine its worth And isn't that a very fitting reminder because we think of the Old Testament? Remember Daniel, that godly man, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And when it was presented to his three friends, listen, you need to bow down. You need to bow down to this. We're the government. We will tell you what to do. We will save you. We will fix you. You listen to us, and you bow down, or you are going into that fiery furnace, and what happened? They said, We only bow down to the Lord. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But then what happened? A fourth person showed up in the fiery furnace. It was the Lord showed up in the fire with them. And it says that they weren't hurt. They weren't wounded. They came out all. They didn't even smell like smoke, the Bible says. I think that's almost like God probably was smiling when he wrote that. They didn't even smell like smoke. How do you think of that? I even smoke-proofed them. And all they lost was the bonds that were on their wrists, and they came out. What the Lord was with them in the furnace. They were severely tested. They were tossed in the fire, but Jesus was with them in the fire. And he says to these group of believers, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Now, commentators try and speculate what that 10 days refers to. To me, at the end of the day, it's referring to a brief and a limited time. You can try and picture and symbolically figure out what that describes, and some do. I, I don't run down that rabbit trail. It's describing a problem that's not going to have an unending amount of time. It was a set and a limited period. And whatever that refers to, I'm thankful that Warren Wiersbe always says, whenever you get thrown into the fire, God keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. And he says, look, it's going to be a 10-day period of testing. Interesting, Daniel and his friends in Daniel 1 were tested for 10 days, and they ended up coming better on the back end of being tested for 10 days. And just like Jesus and Job and Peter and others, at times we will be tested, we will go through our own fiery furnace, and the purpose is to, to glorify the Lord through it and to grow spiritually in the midst of it. And again, as I said, notice Jesus has no reproof for this church. He doesn't have to speak words of correction to a group of people who were hurting because they were tender spiritually. Their heart was inclined towards the Lord. Now, to me, again, that that really throws water on the dumb idea to say that the best Christians will never suffer. Apparently not true. Apparently not true. But look at the two encouragements Jesus gives to them in verse 10. I have two things underlined. His first encouragement to them suffering is in verse 10, the beginning of it, where he says to them, to those in pain and hardship, do not fear. Don't fear. The Lord knows our tendency when we're going through hardship to get anxious, to get alarmed. What if this? And then what if that? And and fear does have a way of kind of gripping our hearts when pain and problems come around. It's like pain and problems push the fear button in our hearts, and Jesus says, listen, I know your human frailty, and when the hardship comes, he says, here's my one word of advice to you, because I'm with you. Don't freak out. Just don't freak out. I know it's hard, but when the fire comes, don't be afraid. How many times did Jesus say when we read him speaking in the Gospels, do not be afraid, only what? Believe. Believe. Keep believing. Keep believing that you know what's true. And why? Why? because he's with us. That's why we cannot be afraid. right? When Paul was in Acts chapter 18, and Paul was kind of a gritty guy, and he was struggling, apparently, with concern, and Jesus said to Paul, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I'm with you. That's the reason, Paul. My presence is the reason that you don't have to be fearful. Now, I can relate to that as a husband, because one of the things that I've seen over the years of marriage with my wife is that My wife, if I'm away from the home or if I'm out of town or something, she tends to be more nervous and apprehensive than when I'm there. Now, whether I'm in the house sleeping there or I'm somewhere else, at the end of the day, the same things could happen whether I'm home or whether I'm not home. But for some strange reason, my presence makes her feel a little bit more assured, right? And the same thing with the Lord, spiritually, The thing that gives us the ability to not be overwhelmed and crushed by fear is to know that Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. The loving eternal son of God, I'm with you in everything all the time. And that helps subdue the fear a little bit when we go through hardships, because we know the presence of the Lord is with us and will always be with us. And then the other exhortation Jesus gives is toward the end of verse 10, where he says to them, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Jesus calls them in the midst of hardship to willfully endure and persevere in commitment and to keep pressing forward. And he says, I'm with you. Remain faithful. And man, I look at those terms there of Jesus in the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I think, what a tremendous call there to any Christian unto faithfulness. The way that Jesus says that, Be faithful until death. That is the ultimate ideal achievement for us as Christians, to continue to remain committed to Christ and devoted to him even until the day that it results in the time of our death. So Jesus says, just be faithful until the time of death, or listen, perhaps he's also saying, and be faithful even if it results in your death. Jesus would say, hardship will come, painful situations will happen. You don't have to find a way out of the problem. You don't have to fix the problem. Jesus says, all I'm asking, you just stay faithful to me through the problem. Just stay faithful to me. You just cling to me and stay faithful to me all the way until the end. What a great exhortation of the Lord in the midst of our hard times. Don't be afraid but don't run from me. Stay faithful to me. You be faithful even unto death. And he says, in one day you will find that you will receive the crown of life. In other words, there's coming a time in eternity when he's going to take away from us the crowny thorn of pain and problems and he's going to give us an eternal crown. And then it's going to be all worth it. It's all going to make sense. Romans 8 says that the present sufferings of our time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that one day will be Revealed. Jesus concluded with this church saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now we saw last time, he who overcomes is a reference to the born-again believer. And he says, the born-again believer hears the overcoming promise, you won't be hurt by the second death. The Bible speaks of two deaths, one that is a temporal death and the other that is an eternal death. That is, every human being on the planet goes through the first death. We all die physically at some point in our earthly journey where we're separated from this body and our spirit goes to an eternal destination. But the Bible also speaks of a second death, which is a spiritual and eternal death, which is separation from God. And that second death is described in Revelation chapter 20 as it describes how death and Hades and all whose names were not written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. And the Bible says, and this is the second death, being banished from God eternally, suffering torment eternally, being separated from God forever. And Jesus says here, I know this life sometimes can be like hell. And I'm not saying that to be crass in my language. I'm saying it to drive home a point. But Jesus says, this is the most of that you'll ever endure. Because something far better is coming. You've escaped hell. You've escaped eternal torment. And I think the word of the Spirit to us, he says to the churches, have an ear to hear. I think the word of the Lord through this particular letter is something like this. I know it's hard, but I love you and I'm with you and you keep going and you be faithful to me and it's all going to be worth it on the other side. Let's stand together. Let's pray.